0: Take a seat. <clears throat> thank you, thank you. Well, good morning, guys. Uh, if you haven't yet, uh, please open up to John 17, verses 1 through 8. Um, I try to be careful not to differentiate personally uh, between passages of Scripture as like some being more important than other passages. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, the Bible teaches all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's critical and its importance, every single passage. Um, But still, though, I can't help but to think that there is something very, very special about John 17. And um, I'm not the the first person to ever think this, okay? So there's going to be a few quotes here on the screen. John Brown, who was an 18th century Scottish Pastor said this about John 17. He said, the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John is without doubt the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the world. Dang, that's a pretty big statement. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a British pastor uh, in the early uh, 20th century, uh, he said, I would be careful, lest I should appear to differentiate between the value of one part of Holy Scripture and another, but no one will deny that when we come to this chapter, we are at the center of all the sanctities. And then Philip Melanchthon, who uh, succeeded uh, Martin Luther um, in, the, in the great Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, he said this, he gave this, he talked about John 17 in his final lecture before he died. Okay? He taught on this chapter and he said this, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son to God himself. This is a pretty weighty chapter. I mean, if you've ever read John 17, you're like, "Wow, I feel like I'm just lost in just amazing you know declaration about life and God and, and what this life is really all about." And so um, definitely feels like a daunting task a little bit to navigate through this. And um, this is upheld as one of the most sacred chapters, right in all of Scripture. Why? Well, I mean, there are many reasons, I suppose, but maybe the greatest, I think, is because uh, we get a unique window into the very heart of Jesus, into the very heart of Jesus, that we just don't get anywhere else. Um, Prayer is a really intimate thing, isn't it? I mean, I remember when uh, in college uh, when I began to date my wife, um, there was, within Christian dating, which has a lot of weird things to it, but um, in Christian dating, I remember people being like, praying with your wife is, or praying with your girlfriend is like one of the most intimate things you could ever do, you know, it's kind of like your first kiss or something like that, and so some of you just kiss whoever, and that's another issue, but uh, we waited like, you know, four four months, you know, have our first kiss, and I remember even like the first time we prayed together, and how, you know, I, I went left that time being like, yeah, that was, it was pretty... Pretty intimate, you know, and so um, there's weird stuff that can happen with there. guys are trying to pray with girls and whatever, bad stuff happens. But anyways, um, it's, it's true though. I think if you're doing prayer right, if you're doing prayer right, okay, you open up your heart and you're vulnerable and you give people a window into the deep recesses of your heart in a way that you just don't do in other spheres or other environments, right? So we, we know, just when we read the Gospels, we know that Jesus prayed that the eternal Son of God spent a massive amount of his time in prayer on this earth. And so he would, we would read how he would withdraw to desolate places just to pray, or he would get up really early in the morning, and he would just spend time in prayer, or he would go an entire night, and all he would do is just pray. We knew this about Jesus, so we knew that he prayed a lot, but we often don't really know what he prayed for. We just know that he prayed. But here in John 17, we get the longest ever window into the heart of Jesus' prayer life. And it just so happens to be a prayer that he prays on the night right before he dies. And and I've never honestly been with somebody who's um, on the last night of their life. I've never like hung out with somebody who knew they were gonna die uh, the next day. Maybe you have. Um, I've, I've never heard some follower of Jesus pray a final prayer knowing that it was their final prayer. But I would have to bet that in a moment like that, there'd be a lot of clarity. There'd be a lot of just focus in a way that you don't really hear that often. I I just wonder, like, what would you ask for if that was where you were at? What would you ask for? Uh, This morning, uh, we get to start this two-week process. We're going to look at John 17 in in the course of two weeks um, just because of of its density and how amazing it is. And uh, really, we should take 10 weeks, but we're not going to do that. Um, But next week, Jeremy is going to bless us by teaching through... Uh, verses nine through 26 where Jesus prays for his disciples and for us. Uh, but this morning we're looking at verses one through eight where Jesus prays for himself. He prays for himself. And we see just incredible things that should shape our prayer life and our day to day life. And so this is what we see. Uh, we see what Jesus asked for. He asks for two things. And they're kind of the same thing. Uh, we see what he lived for and then I just want us to go, why, does, why do these things matter for you or does this only matter for Jesus? and hopefully you'll see that it really matters for you. So first, I want us to look at what Jesus asked for. Okay, I'm gonna read verses one through five, but we get the answer to that question, what is his request of himself? You get that in verses one through five, as you pay attention, we're, as we're going along here. Verse one through five, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, okay, the upper room discourse, he's done teaching, he turns his gaze, his eyes to the Father in heaven, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus prays for himself, and he makes two requests. He has two requests for himself in this epic prayer. There's one in verse one, and there's a request in verse five. And what is the request? What does he ask for? Glory. He asks for glory. He says, Glorify your son, glorify me. I'm just curious, like, what do you think about when you think of glory? In other words, what is glorious to you? That you'd point at, and you're like, Oh, that's glorious. Right there, like a sunset, right? Maybe a sunrise, if you ever wake up early enough to see one, you might go, that's, that's glorious. Like Mount Hood, or standing on Crown Point looking at the gorge, I'd go, that is, that is glorious. Last week I mentioned it, I'll mention it every time, the Grand Canyon, glorious. How about a, a mother holding her newborn baby? You go, that's, that is glorious, right there. Right? How about an act of sacrifice that someone makes for somebody else? You know, that's that is that is glorious. Maybe like a room full of laughter. Okay? Maybe it's just like going to see your favorite band or artist live. Like that was glorious. These these are the things we think of, correct? Right? What What is glorious here in this passage? What is glorious here? Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. See, this entire gospel of John that we've been saturating our lives with nearly this entire school year has constantly referred to Jesus' hour. And what's the hour? Somebody give me the hour. What is it? Hopefully you know this by now. What's the hour? Anybody? Oh, no, you don't remember? His death, Right? His death. The hour is, is, is the moment where he will die upon a cross. He will be hung onto a cross, right? What is glorious here? It's the cross. Well, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, especially if you understood what crucifixion was. Because in the, in the Roman world, I mean, people like slaves, they weren't crucified. Criminals, mere criminals were not crucified. You know, the people who were crucified in the Roman world? It was people who were guilty of, like, treason, who were rebels. They were trying to overthrow Roman rule. So anyone who was seen as a threat to the empire, to the kingdom, was crucified. They were humiliated in order to be made an example of, if you're ever going to try to overthrow us, this is what you can expect. This is what will happen to you. That's not glorification, right? That's humiliation. So, so how is this glory? Jesus says, the hour has come, the hour of my death has come. Father, glorify me. Glorify me. How is this glory? Well, it's because of our massive problem that each one of us walked in this room with this morning. It's because of our sin problem. It's because of our sin problem. It's because it's the beginning of time, guys. We've been born with this sin problem. I mean, I don't have to teach my kids how to sin. They just do it, right? No one taught me how to do that. We just do it. We're born with this sin problem. We have this sin problem, and it's not just a problem amongst many problems. It is the problem, because everything in the world was right and good, and then sin entered in, and because sin entered into the world, things changed. Things resulted from that moment. Things like death. Things like decay. Sickness and suffering and broken marriages and friendships and oppression came and abuse, right, and greed and exploitation and people just grabbing for power, you know, all those things, though, they're a result of sin that's in our lives, right? It's sin that needs to be dealt with, and sin is something that can just never coincide with God because sin doesn't dwell with God. It just can't. He's too perfect, he's too holy, he can't be near it, but he's also too just, he can't write it off. He can't write it off. When he sees somebody exploit somebody else or abuse somebody else or whatever, he can't let it slide. He isn't unjust, God is just, and so justice must come. The perpetrator must be judged, and the ruling is death. Eternal death, in the absence of anything that could ever be labeled as good, that you would look at and you're like, that's good. See, what's God's plan from the beginning of time, from the beginning of your Bibles? His plan was this hour. This was the plan. It was this hour. It was the cross. And in the cross, God puts his glory on full display. You see his holiness. You see his justice, his love for the world, his compassion, his mercy, and his grace. God is glorified through the cross. And Jesus says, the hour is here. Father, glorify me. Do that. That's his prayer. That's his prayer. This is the window into the heart of Jesus, and this request for glory would've honestly, it would've been really jarring if you were a a Jewish person in this day and time. It would've been very jarring to overhear this in the ancient world. Why? Because Jesus, in asking for God to glorify him, is claiming deity. That's what he's doing. He asks for the Father to glorify him. Yeah, this will be on the screen. Isaiah 42, eight, places like this. Read, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. See, God doesn't share his glory unless that glory is directed towards God himself, but Jesus asks for glory, and we see why he can ask for glory when you read verse 5, because Jesus says in verse 5, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus reveals even here that he has always existed before the material world was ever even spoken into existence, that before the first break of light into this world, Jesus was there. He had existed, and he shared in the glory with the Father. Honestly, guys, this like magnifies this request of Jesus. This isn't a mere man asking wrongly for glory. He's asking rightly for it, and the way that he's going to be glorified is through the most humiliating event that this world has ever even seen, an event that would be at the top of things of your list that you would not want to see if this were to happen today things that you wouldn't want to go to and go, hey, that's glorious. You'd go, I don't want to see it. Which again, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like glory. According to the things that we would label as glorious. But it's through the glory of the cross that Jesus will receive the glory that he had with the Father at one point before everything existed. See, so here, here's the key, okay? The key here is in why Jesus is asking for God to glorify him. Why is he doing it? Why is he asking for it? What does he say? He says, glorify me so that I can glorify you. Glorify me so that I can glorify you. Do you see when Jesus prays for himself how he prays? You see his prayer for himself? It's a a me for you prayer. It's a me for you prayer. It's what his prayer is. Glorify the son so that the son may glorify you, verse one. But even in verse 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you, that we shared, that's your glory, Father, before the world existed. Even there, Jesus is longing to be glorified so that he may be in the presence of his Father's glory. In other words, he wants to be glorified so he can experience the awesomeness of the Father's glory. It's me for you. It's me for you. You see, we often have a wrong view, I think, of Christian um, humility, we think it means that we don't ever want to seek a blessing in our life. We don't want to be blessed. But Jesus asks God to bless him, to glorify him. He Here's the prayer of Jesus, and and here then, honestly, it should be our prayer. This should be our prayer. It's me for you. So I just want to ask you, are your prayers for yourself me for you prayers? Is that how you pray? God, God, I'm asking you, to so bless me so that I could glorify you. See, humility is not not seeking prosperity. That's not humility. It's a decision to use whatever prosperity God sends you to direct people's attention towards God. I know I just use the word prosperity and some of you freak out thinking this is like prosperity gospel. It's not what I'm talking about, okay? They've, someone's hijacked that word, okay? But really, humility is not not seeking prosperity. It's, it's a decision that when God brings prosperity your way, do you di- use that to direct the attention towards God? See, I, I personally, I pray for God to raise up to, you could use the word glorify our church family here, but it's not for the sake of our church. That would just be dumb, honestly, I asked that he would do it for his glory. And you should ask that too, not only of your church family, but for your own life. And you might say right now, well, that just sounds kind of convenient, doesn't it? That sounds maybe a little convenient for us, you know? You and God both getting glory. How can you know when you say that that's not really about you? Like, how can you know it's not what you're seeking? Well, that's a great question. There's two quick ways I think you can know how. When you're praying that prayer, you're not just seeking it for yourself. First, when God gets glory for himself, by exalting someone else besides you. You can see whether you are more concerned about God's glory than yours. So when God blesses somebody else's life, when God glorifies and exalts himself through another person, it's not you. If your heart is really happy about that, you can see that your me for you prayers are really true, right? See, we often think that we are praying me for you prayers, but when that happens, Right? We, don't, we don't get happy. We actually begin to lament. We begin to get annoyed or frustrated. You know, we begin to talk bad about people when that happens to them. But if God's receiving glory from their life, we should be excited about that because that would be our heart's prayer all along, would it not? But, but secondly, I think we can know that our heart is for God's glory by evaluating what you do when he allows suffering in your life. I think it's another great spot that you can really tell if this is your prayer, because here, Jesus' prayer is a prayer to suffer. You see that, it's to suffer in a way that you would never have to. It's on a cross during God's judgment, right? Sometimes God brings glory to himself by how joyously his believers suffer and how confident that you remain even in the pain. It is true that God gets glory when, when sick Christians get well. But I think also God gets glory when sick Christians die well too. See, when when we are able to say even in the midst of our pain, guys, I have a treasure greater than health, or earthly benefits, when we say in the midst of confusion, in the midst of our own life's disappointment, I trust God and his loving purposes for my life, and when we aren't just saying that, but when we're believing that, and exhibiting a peace and joy that is foreign to the world, people in this world will ask you why, and you can say because God showed me he was most trustworthy at the cross, so I know that I can trust him here. I know that. That brings him glory, and this is what Jesus prays for. It's glory but it's me for you kind of glory. Secondly, we see uh, what Jesus lived for. We see this in verses four and verses six through eight. Look in verse four with me. He says this. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do So here, Jesus doesn't make a request. He just prays this prayer of celebration that he's finished the work that God has given him to do. And our passage gives us a broader stroke of what his work was. And you see it in verse six. He says, I have manifested your name on earth. I've manifested it. Broad stroke, it's what Jesus' life was lived for. Manifesting his name. What does it mean to manifest something? To manifest something means to make something really clear. It's to make something really visible to people, to make something clear or visible. So Jesus is saying, I made you visible. That's what he's saying. I, I revealed God in the flesh, how did I do that? Well, well definitely through my miracles that you've, you've been sitting in since last fall in the Gospel of John, I did it through my miracles, but here we see that it's through words that Jesus manifested the Father. It's through words words of truth that the Father gave to Jesus to speak to the world. And in verse, verse 8, you see this, for I have given them the words. See, this is Jesus is showing you what his life was, was, how his life was lived honestly. And we know that he lived a life of sheer dependence upon his Father. This is how Jesus lived. If you read in a place like John 5.19, this will be on the screen for you. John 5.19, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, okay? For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This was Jesus' daily posture in life. It was, it was me for you sort of living, He he lived to manifest the Father. He said, Father, send me into the world so that I can make you clear, so that I can make you visible through my life, through my words, through my actions. You see, Jesus' prayers in his life, they lined up. He didn't pray one thing and then live another thing. His me for you prayers, they were lived out in a me for you living. Send me so that I can manifest you. I'm just curious, is, is, is what you pray for what you live for? Is what you pray for what you live for? Is there like a a meshing there? Is there a, a lining up between those two things? See, true me for you prayers are birthed from a me for you heart. And they are manifested in me for you living. See, true me for you prayers, they're birthed out of a me for you heart and they are manifested in me for you living. This is the Christian life. See, But I want you to see, guys, this isn't just a call towards being unselfish. This isn't a call to be like, I'm just gonna be an unselfish person. That's not what this is talking about at all. It's a call to love, and this is what we see in the life of Jesus. Jesus isn't merely being unselfish in his life. It's not what he's doing. He loves his Father, that's why he's doing this. It's basically, I think, impossible to make manifest or visible or clear the value or the glory of something, especially God, when the entire focus is on our own unselfishness. Because what that does is it turns the attention on the person who's being unselfish. See, Jesus' life is a life that says, I want to glorify you, Father. I want to manifest your name, not because I'm simply supposed to, right? but because I want to. It's not... Unselfishness, it's love. See, unselfishness, what it, what it does is it magnifies the person who's being unselfish. But love, it magnifies the person who the love is directed towards. You know this. When someone's being unselfish, you're like, wow, you're such an unselfish person. But when it's just love, when that's the, when that's the, the, the overarching thing in that person's life, it's directed towards the attentive person of the love. Right? One is a negative term, one is a positive term. This will be on the screen. C.S. Lewis once said this. He says, if you asked 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened. A negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is of more than philological importance. It's a big deal. It's not just nuance. See, Jesus doesn't live out of mere obligation, but he lives out of love. He lives with a vision of the Father's glory in mind, not out of what he has to do, but from a place of actually focusing on what the Father is receiving from his life. It's not merely unselfishness. It's love. It's me for you love. It's not duty. It's delight. Let me just imagine this. Imagine that I, I went home today uh, to my house, and I brought Liz flowers, okay, flowers that she actually liked, okay, that were not too expensive, because she doesn't want expensive flowers, okay, um, and I got her chocolates, you know, I um, I brought her a movie she's been really wanting to see, I did all the dishes, I said, hey, don't take care of the kids today, I'm just gonna take care of the kids, you go take a nap, you know, you know, have a go you know go to a spa or something. I just do all these things for Liz, and she turns around and she says to me, oh my gosh, that is so sweet. Thank you so much. And I just replied to her, and I said, well, it's what I'm supposed to do. You know, it's what I signed up for, you know? I, I've, told, I've been told that to be a good husband is what you're supposed to do, right? And I stood before you and I told you I would do these kind of things, and so that's, yeah, it's what I'm supposed to do, right? You'd be like, you are lame, man. You are completely... Absolutely lame husband, okay? That would be a terrible example of being a husband, correct, right? Does that, is that going to make her heart flutter? Of course not, right? Does that glorify the beauty and the worth and the value of the bride? Is that, is that how that works? Of course not, right? Does that manifest her beauty? Of course not. It's, it's actually a failed attempt to glorify myself, It's me just saying I'm just being unselfish. It's about me being unselfish, no. That's not me for you, that's me for me. That's what that is. You see, when God is supreme and when he is most glorious in your life, when he is your love, you will live a me for you kind of life. What does that practically look like? Well, it practically looks like the way Jesus lived, honestly. He used the power that he had, the resources that he had. He used that to bless other people. He took his blessing and he blessed other people. He took his status, and he didn't use that to his own advantage, but he used it to other people's advantage. Right? So that would be putting God on display. That's what Jesus did. And so for us, just maybe even on the ground, let's just go further to the ground. Us on the ground, this is what it would look like, me for you sort of living. Right? It would be like um, my daughter okay, asking me for a piece of gum, uh, which she does every five minutes. Okay? And I gave her a piece of gum, and it was my last piece of gum. She received it and then Gus walks over and says, can I have a piece of gum? I said, sorry, that was my last piece. It would look like Eden turning around and giving Gus that piece of gum, right? That's never happened before. But if it did, okay, that'd be amazing. This is like my fantasy world here, okay, as parenting. But it would also be like this. It'd be like asking for a house with a heart that wants to be more hospitable to other people. It'd be like asking for an increase in your salary, not just so that you could increase the things that you wanted, but so that you could give more to the cause of Christ. It'd be like asking for a spouse, not just because you, you want a life partner or something, which is amazing, okay? But in a real way, so that you could live in a, better, in a, in a different kind of way for the, for the glory of God, that your relationship with that person could be put on display in this world, right? It would it, look like changing a diaper honestly, believe it or not, and doing so with care for your child Because, because God cared for you, and he has nurtured you in every single way imaginable, and now you display his care over every area of your child's life. It'd be speaking out on behalf of the voiceless, those who are marginalized and oppressed. It'd be fighting human trafficking, because, because Jesus fought for the exploited and, and abused, right? It could, it could simply be looking at people around you today and not looking past them, but looking at them and realizing they're real people just like you and that they matter and like listening to them, right? It'd be doing that because God in his mercy, guys, he hasn't looked past you, right? He didn't view you as an obstacle or he didn't look at you and say, does this person have something to offer me? Then I will treat them this way. No, he looked at you and he said, I don't really think you have much to offer me at all, actually. But I see you. I'm going to do more than just see you. See, it's, it's basically treating people in a way that manifests, that makes clear, that makes the character and the nature of God visible. Right? All that God is, it's just putting that on display through our own lives. But it's not so that people would look at us and go, wow, you're so unselfish or you're so this or that. And so we go, no, look how beautiful and magnificent God is. See, this is not abstract at all. Because you and I, we were made in the image of God to reflect him and his likeness. And we reflect him. We don't reflect him in a vacuum. It's not just some weird relationship, just me and God. No, we're called in this relationship with other people. And so the way that we do this, me for you kind of living like Jesus did, is it matters how we treat each other in the world. This is what Jesus prayed for when he prayed for himself. This is what Jesus lived for, manifested the Father. Why does this even matter for you? How does this spill over into your life? And we'll look with me again at the beginning. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse two. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, Jesus' prayer will be answered His requests will be answered the day after he prays his prayer. He will be crucified. He will be glorified in the hour. And and the answer to his prayer matters. It matters beyond measure for you. Beyond measure, how? Well, Jesus says here, you have given him authority over all flesh. Who has God given authority over all flesh? It's the Son, it's Jesus. This doesn't mean that Jesus just got a promotion. That's not all what this means. Jesus has always been the eternal son of God, so what is happening here? Well, this phrase that he has been given authority over all humanity, that that's being given to Jesus, what is this saying, this is so important for you? What that phrase means is this, it is marking the beginning of the end. That Jesus has authority over all flesh, it is marking the beginning of a new dawn, a new day, a new era. He's the new man and new humanity that God's gonna create through the life of Jesus is beginning. And this matters for you and me more than you'll ever know. See, it's an era where people can be reconciled fully and finally to God. You can experience God, not in some abstract way, but in real practical, tangible ways. A day where sin is destroyed, right? Satan is defeated. Suffering and pain knows that its time is up. It's coming to an end. The clock is ticking because Jesus has won, he's been given authority, and now what's he gonna do? He's gonna launch us and lead us into a new and secure and bright future. And that bright future, Jesus says, it begins today. It begins right now. For those who've received him by faith who looked at his death as their death, and his resurrection as their resurrection. It begins now. This is how John's gospel is, honestly, it's very unique. Because a lot of other places in the the New Testament, they talk about eternal life as being a thing that you will experience someday, and that's very true, okay? But John talks about it as if it's a here and now sort of reality. Do you see that? It says it in verse three. What is eternal life? In verse three. How is it defined here? He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, They know you, the only true God and they know Jesus Christ, me, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? What does that mean? Well, it's to know the only true God and to know Jesus. Eternal life is knowing God and beginning a life where you never cease to know God, okay? But this knowing isn't intellectual and this is important because I feel like I probably just said that right now and you're like, that's cool, I already kind of know God, big deal, right? I'm being honest, Like we probably feel that way about this phrase. But this knowing God isn't just an intellectual information sort of thing because the Hebrew understanding of this word, it's not communicating that eternal life is intellectual knowledge. It means to live in fellowship with God. It implies this intimate relationship. It means that you know God personally. See, I think this idea is really challenging for us because we live in a world where people say things like, oh, I hate Gwen Stefani. Right, she is just, she's so fake, you know. Or I cannot stand Tom Brady, he's so into himself, and I heard he once did this at a grocery store. You know, and um, yeah, every time, I just wanna say, and Liz, my wife knows, she, this is like a biggest pet peeve of mine when people do this with celebrities, okay. I, I wish I had the guts to say like, how are you even qualified to know that? Right, like we, we talk about people like we know them, and we feel like we know them because we know information about people. We equate knowing people Maybe more than ever because of social media and access to people's private lives, we equate knowing people to having information about them. And we do this with other people. We might walk up to each other and go, hey, do you know so-and-so? And you're like, yeah, I know them. But what you mean is like, you know of them, right? Like you maybe talk to them at one point. Like we all do this. And we, we take information and we make full and final judgments about people without ever having spent time with them. And people we even know deeply, we, we do the same sort of thing with. You might get into a romantic relationship with somebody else and you get to a point where you're like, I just feel like I need to learn something new about you, something novel about you and then I feel like our relationship is advancing in some way. So we equate knowing with information even in like our closest relationships. Okay? But what Jesus means when he says that eternal life is to know God, that doesn't mean that you will know things about God. That's not at all what this means. Eternal life isn't studying, you know, isn't like studying for a test and passing it. That's not what eternal life is. Okay? What Jesus means when he says that eternal life is to know God, he means that you know God through Jesus in the way that a husband knows a wife or in the way that a wife knows a husband or in the way that a father knows his son or in the way that a mother knows her daughter. It's that kind of way. That's what Jesus means. It's an intimate, fellowship, relational, knowing kind of way that begins now. Like right now. And it only gets better and it will never actually end. So this means that you don't study God like a Wikipedia page of information. You study God in the way that you would study a sunset. Or you study God in the way that a a soldier, a deployed soldier, would study a photo of his fiance. It's very different. Like that deployed soldier, you know this woman, and you long to see her face to face. You're not just rambling off information. You have something way more profound than that. See, Jesus is me for you, prayers in life which were are all about wanting to see the Father glorified, have spilled over into the most precious and dramatically life-altering ways for you. You can experience eternal life, not just physical life. We all have that, and we all would say, depending on our day, it's good, it's bad. But life is it's supposed to be in relationship with God. Do you see, we live me-for-you lives because Jesus lived a me-for-you life. He lived a life for you. His death was for you. His resurrection was for you. His perfect life was for you. In living for his father, that spilled over into living and acting for you. And now he's ushering in a whole new kind of life. And it's a, it's a new way of praying, it's a new way of living, and it's a me for you life. And thanks be to God that Jesus prayed, Father, me for you for the sake of them. So that now we can pray, Father, me for you for the glory of Jesus. This is, this is eternal life, Jesus modeled it. It's to know God and to live for God, and that life, guys, it begins right now, it begins today. It begins today. Lord Jesus, I wanna ask you this morning that you would manifest your glory to us, God, that you'd be clear, that you'd be visible, that you'd be on display before the eyes of our heart, God, and in this place as we gather in this room, Lord, as we respond to your word, we thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you glorified yourself on the cross and that you reign in glory now and that someday you're gonna bring us to that place. We will experience that in all its full reality. So Lord Jesus, I pray that you would um, empower us, enable us, God, to live lives um, that not only pray this way, but live this way. That we'd follow you, Jesus, in this way. That whatever we receive from you, God, that we really would be people who would open our hands and say, we want to glorify you, God. Help us to pray that, God, help us to live that. In Christ's name, I pray, amen.